There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got David Baldwin, founder of Baldwin and an advertising agency located in Raleigh, North Carolina recent author, and also a film producer. Today on the show, we talk about David's new book, The Belief Economy, How to Give a Damn, Stop Selling, and Create Buy-In. The Belief Economy is really a generational story, and we talk about millennials, iGens, and what we have to do as brands today to really gain their attention and honestly regain their trust. I hope you enjoy this episode with David Baldwin. Well, David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So we've known each other a long time. We, we haven't stayed in touch that frequently, but we've known each other for a long time. And I've followed your career. And honestly, I don't know how to describe you. You're a brewer or, or brewery owner, a ad guy, a film producer, a general do-gooder. How would you describe yourself? That's interesting. I wouldn't call myself a do-gooder, that's for sure. I think what probably helps me describe myself is the state of the ad industry itself and what it allows you to do now. Because there was a time in advertising where you got into the ad business and you could kind of do this and that, but there was an old joke that, you know, every every writer had a screenplay in their desk, you know, in their drawer and and but they had to leave advertising to go do it 
And now you don't have to leave. Now you can kind of do anything you want to do. And so I think I'm a creative guy with options is really what I would say. And but I think that's that's where we are in the ad business. And it, that's where we are in culture in general is is we have more tools to do the things we want to do. And I've always valued output. That's what I would say. And so I'm, I'm always trying to do things I'm interested in. And I've been very lucky to get paid for some of those things and uh, always curious and trying to always move forward. Help me understand, what are all the roles you have right now? Right now, I am the CEO of Baldwin And in Raleigh, which is an advertising design strategy company. And uh, I'm also the CMO of a brewery in Durham, North Carolina called Pony Source Brewing Company. My favorite beer, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, you shouldn't trust me on that, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's, I'm a little biased, but it's it's quite fantastic. And then I just wrote a book, so I suppose I'm an author now. I have produced movies. I've been the producer on a couple of movies and I've helped push a couple of movies forward in sort of a more kind of background fashion. But always what I would say is all the things that I generally do are trying to live into the mission of having some kind of positive impact on the world as I see it. And so, you know, when when uh, I was an executive producer on a movie called Art and Copy about 10 years ago, and that movie was about trying to celebrate creativity. We made that movie for clients as much as, as the ad industry itself, but we wanted to kind of present the people behind the advertising. Advertising as an art form is one of the most prevalent art forms in history, in the history of humanity. It's everywhere. And because of that, you see it everywhere, but you don't know who did the the work. You don't know who was behind it. And so that movie was all about showing kind of the how the revolution spawned these amazing creative people and advertising people tend to be a little rebellious which is kind of funny because we're all capitalists but that's who's in that movie and so and then i i uh, became a producer on a movie called the the loving story which is a documentary about richard and mildred loving the most wonderfully coincidental name ever they were an interracial couple back in the 50s and 60s who it was illegal to be married in virginia as an interracial couple and so they took their case to the supreme court just to win the ability to be married and again, I thought that was that was a very important story that needed to be told. And it ended up turning into a feature, which I had nothing to do with. So now I'm now I've written the book and the book is is really, I think, very relevant for what's going on right now. But it's about advertising staying relevant as much as anything and being a part of creating solutions and being I think it can be a a future for our business to start thinking this way, in particular, the next 40 years where millennials and iGen are completely in control of purchasing. So that's kind of what always motivates me. Um, but I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't want to be, I don't want to put any sort of noble aspirations around it. I'm just trying to do things I'm interested in and the push kind of the things that I, that I believe and do it in a respectful way that has some kind of impact. That's, that's really what I'm trying to do. That sounds awesome. I've got one more question about you before we start talking about the book. I love to get to know the person I'm talking to. And, and I, I love this question and I, I hope, hope you, you don't mind me asking is, you know, is there an experience in your past that defines who you think you've become kind of a deep question, but well, I'm, I'm a recovering Texan. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in El Paso, Texas in West Texas, which is this really cool little town. And interestingly, it's it's sort of tucked away from the rest of Texas. But uh, then I uh, uh, went to school in Austin. I grew up around advertising. I feel like I've been in advertising since I was like 12. My mother 
was a media person, the media director at a little agency there called the Brian Reddig at the time. So I, you know, I, I would go into the, I would go into the office and with her and stuff. And you see these guys in the back, like people in the back with drawing boards and they're drawing stuff. And I was like, okay, that looks, that looks cool. Like, what are you doing back there? <laughs> How are you getting paid for that? And so I was, you know, I, I kind of grew up around art for commerce. And, and so it was always an option for me. You know, I think about a lot of kids now coming up, they don't understand that that's an option. So for me, I always knew it was an option and I was also a musician. And so I was kind of just bound and determined to make my li living off of my creative wits, you know, as a creative person, I wanted to do that and realize that I was much better at advertising than I was at music. So, uh, which I still, you know, I still play, I still play guitar and write songs and things like that, but it's, a, it's just a fun hobby. But, um, I think growing up around around the business, seeing seeing what it can be and what it is and the kinds of things we can do, I think was very formative for me and gave me a 20-year head start on a lot of people. Oh, good, good. Now let's get to the book. The book's title is The Belief Economy, How to Give a Damn, Stop Selling, and Create Buy-In. So first question is, why this book? Why now? Well, you know... It's funny the the my my agency now is 10 years old, almost 10 years old. We're in our 10th year, going into our 10th year. And the ground has completely shifted in the last 10 years. And when we started the agency, we thought like, man, the ground has completely shifted from 10 years ago. And it everything has just shifted right under our feet. And there's uh, as we all know, there's a million reasons for that. There's sociological reasons, there's cultural reasons, there's technological reasons. There's just all this stuff happening. But what you have in the center of all of this are millennials and iGen, these two generations taking firm control. And, you know, I think it's funny because 10 years ago, everyone was trying to understand the millennial. They were the young target. Millennials are going to be 38 this year, the oldest ones. So they're in control. They've got kids. I feel like almost every brief that comes across our desks now is, uh, you know, how do we talk to millennial families? It used to be, how do we get to young millennials? You know, this and that. So because of that, the rules have changed. I think the rules of marketing have changed. And my kid, I've got two kids. My, my kids are 21 and 18 right now. And they don't interact with brands. They don't interact with companies. They don't trust corporations. Like they don't interact in any way the way I did, or I think previous generations did. They're very, very savvy to sale a sales message. Like they'll turn that off pretty fast. They don't watch TV. They watch Netflix. You know, they watch YouTube. They just don't interact with anything the way we used to. And they also really care about what companies are up to and they'll find out really fast. I'm talking about the generation as much as anything. And so you've got these two generations coming up, spending all this money and Accenture estimated millennials by 2020 is controlling $1.4 trillion of spending. That's profound. And then right behind them are iGen, which I believe are about 600 billion. So in Part of that number is the influence that these two generations have on everything around them, the way they spread messages socially, all the things that they do, they are in control and they're in control for the next 30 to 40 years. So we better, we better figure out what they're about. We better figure out how they're wired and we better figure out how to change the way we talk to them because commercials, quote unquote, don't work anymore like they used to. Now, that doesn't mean tactical advertising doesn't work. And that doesn't mean that you get rid of your day-to-day -day stuff. But as a brand, you need to start thinking about your impact and you need to start thinking of, you need to put that into your briefs. Like what's the impact you're trying to have as a company, as a brand. And so that's why I wrote the book. So the, the book is kind of basically, I mean, at its, at its sort of heart is, is how do you 
kind of help turn your brand into a verb and think about the brand's behavior a little bit harder than you than maybe you used to. And the same discipline you used to put around sort of your persuasion and your selling methods, you put it into like, what's the behavior you're, you're creating and putting out into the world? Well, so I, I did learn a lot about you in this book. And I learned you, you hate the word consumer about as much as I do. You really love these two generations, millennials and iGens. And you're a fan of conscious capitalism. But Maybe you could just help me, because I think I was reading too fast, but maybe you can help me <laughs> define what you mean by the belief economy. What does that mean to you? Well, the belief economy as defined in the book is the economic buying powers of millennial and iGen generations. That's what it is. That's the economy that we're speaking into. It is not, I think one of the mistakes and possibly poor articulation on my part has been that it's a political agenda. It is not a political agenda at all. In fact, what you're seeing is these generations bonding into their belief systems and their value systems on the right, on the left, and in the middle. And a great example of that is Chick-fil-A, right? So Chick-fil-A, you have, you have this very conservative stance on same-sex marriage and things like that. Well, there's a, an entire sort of cohort of people who go crazy for that and say, we need to boycott. And then there's a, an entire cohort of that that says we're going more. So th this is not about politics. This is about getting your values and your belief system aligned with the people that are kind of out there, maybe don't know it yet, but are aligned with your system and then love your products. If you make a crappy product, there's nothing we can do, right? I think we're all, I have to sort of start from if, if your product's shit, I, we, nobody can help you. We can get people to buy it once maybe, but they're not going to buy it twice. So, but you know, if you make a good product and you are not clubbing seals, it really is getting to kind of what you do and getting your value system really clear and creating behavior around it. And by behavior, part of the behavior is communication. And so it is bigger than advertising. It's much bigger than advertising. What I do think is very, very important though, is that there are a lot of brands out there that they don't have CSR programs. They're not tied into some kind of social thing. And yet I think they can still create shared value with their communications. The behavior in their communications can create that. And I think a great example of that is always, right, with the uh, Like a Girl campaign. I don't know that always is or is not some socially sustainable, I have no idea. You know, I don't, I don't have their documents. I don't know what they do. I don't know what their supply chain is and all that stuff. But I do know that they have created shared value in the world with that conversation around what it means to be a girl the confidence around it of being a girl. And obviously their belief system is based somewhere around the notion of self-esteem and confidence. And they've created all this behavior around it. Now that doesn't mean, I guarantee you, we can go find a commercial on YouTube right now where they're showing the blue liquid going into the, into the absorbent pad, you know? So I, I, it's not saying don't do those daily things, but they've found a much bigger lens and a much bigger place to speak from about what they do. And I think it's been very successful. What are the, you know, are there three things that you think companies or brands should be doing to compete in this belief economy? The first thing is getting very, very honest about who you are. You have got to figure out who you are and what your values are. And if you turn those values into behavior, it's funny, like most strategic documents have a tone of voice and then they have four words and they have, you know, they have uh authentic, confident, you know, they have these four words. What we would say is what's the behavior versus the words? Like, how do you turn those words into behavior? What, what behavior do those things lead to? So start thinking of your brand 
as a verb. And the way the way we define a, a brand here, it's a set of behaviors based on an authentic belief system. That's what a brand is. So what do you, you know, how do you go to market? What do you want to make? How do you make it? How do you sell it? How do you talk about it? All of those things are are part of that. And it has to start at a strategic level. Now, a lot of companies already have that figured out. You know, a, a company like Chobani seems to have a pretty good handle on that stuff. But then there are other companies that clearly, you know, you just watch communications coming out of out of any company and you can kind of tell whether they know who they are or not. And so, you know, I, I think kind of getting getting around that idea. So number one is defining your your values by far. And then number two is doing it, creating those behaviors around it. So what was your question? You, you want to know what the third thing was? Yeah. Well, if those two are great. I mean, if there is a third, that's awesome. But Third to me is then living it kind of uh, top to bottom. Because I think one of the things that I think is interesting about what's happening now is you can take, if you're this notion of shared, shared value, you can take that and back down from your marketing and your advertising back into the company. It goes both ways. And so a company can put a stake in the ground and it actually then start looking at their, at the way they do things. I think Paul Pullman from Unilever is doing that. They have very, very clearly taken a stand as a, as a company to make sure all of their brands are having a positive impact. And they're now looking at the supply chain for everything, for how they do everything. So it's kind of gone. Again, I do not have their strategic documents in front of me and maybe this was preceding it, but you kind of look at the campaign for real beauty where I think most of this sort of started for them. And now that it's, it's sort of beautifully infecting the entire company where they're concerned with this all the way through. So Paul Pullman is a, a bit of a visionary on that, I, I believe. So I think the third thing is is really living it day to day and knowing that you're going to, you know, it's a journey. It's a journey. And the kind of first step is the first step. Well, I would encourage anyone listening to, to buy the book. I've gotten a lot out of it. I generally am a believer in almost everything you talk about, especially in the first seven chapters. But what as I read it, maybe it's me being cynical or pragmatic. I wanted to counterpoint, you know, because I. I think beliefs are important today, but I feel like, you know, institutions in some ways are failing us. And maybe I I don't know which comes first, right? The chicken or the egg, but incomes are stagnant. Corporations and institutions, they're just not that trusted anymore. And they're not really great problem solvers, at least the vast majority of them. There are exceptions to any rule. And so by standing up for something or standing, you get to stand out and become something people are willing to potentially trade up for and maybe advocate if we're really lucky. Am I just being a cynic or does that fit within what you see? No, I think you're a thousand percent correct. And I think that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And that's one of the reasons I want to go preach this because the trust in corporations is probably around the same as the trust in our sort of political system. I mean, it's very, very low, but it's there's a bunch of human beings in these companies who have children, who have mortgages, who care about. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
things. You know, so I have a I have a chapter in the book that basically says, you know, don't leave your don't check your humanity at the door when you go into the office in the morning. And I, I think that's very important. And I think again, it's why I, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to get everybody. Let's let's all talk about what impact our company and our jobs are having on the world and on culture and on our kids. It's one of the reasons I hate the word consumer. It's like, it's a dehumanizing term that turns people, you know, it sort of evokes locusts descending on a field, you know, and consuming everything they in that field and then moving to the next field. And that's not who we are as, as people. Certainly some people are that way, but that's not who we are. And I don't, I don't believe that's why we're on, on sort of this journey in this planet that we're on. But I think you're right. But I also, I am optimistic again about millennials coming into the workforce and iGen coming into the workforce. And they tend again to be mission oriented. I think one of the reasons you're seeing these generations bounce around in their jobs a lot is because of what you're talking about. I think they come into a company and go, this is it. This is what we're doing. Uh, not for me. So I think they're going to be in charge. Like they're CEOs now. They're starting to take over everything. And that's great news. And that's why I'm optimistic about the future. And it's, it's one of the canards about the millennial is that they want a trophy and that they're lazy and that they're entitled and all that. No, actually, they believe in stuff and they want to have an impact. And so when they go in and they can't or they don't, they get depressed and they go, I don't want to do this. The notion of sort of punching a clock for 40 years and getting a watch is not something that they're even kind of associated with. So I'm actually very optimistic. That said, I think, you know, we're, there's sort of a train there's a train heading towards uh, a wall and we'll see if we can, we have to survive, <laughs> to survive, I think, to get these generations fully sort of in control. And I think iGen coming behind them is even, even more wired that way. I have this line in the book that millennials want a mission to fulfill them and iGen wants to fulfill a mission. And I, and I, I think that's true from, from what we're seeing right now is that millennials tend to, they're looking to have an impact and a lot of iGen are, they know what they want to do and they're doing it they're bound and determined to do it. You know, I, I'm very optimistic. I'm very optimistic about where we're going. I also think that given the work of William Strauss and Neil Howe that I reference in the book, if you actually read any of their work, um, what their whole thing is predicting the crumbling of institutions and kind of norms. And that's what's happening. We're seeing exactly what has happened over and over again in our history. This is a very predictable time period. I think What's interesting is there's all this technology and sort of social media and AI is coming on. And there's a lot of a lot of change happening right now that in the next 20 to 40 years, everything's going to be remade. It just is. And again, this is think about in the, the 30s during the depression in America before sort of Roosevelt and the New Deal and all of those things, the world got completely remade in 20 years. Completely. And partly because of two world wars, of course. But this is all happening with or without us. And so my my advice to a brand is, hey, let's do it with you. <laughs> let's let's be a part of the solution because it's going to happen. No, that's good advice. It's good advice. So I do have one critique, although it's just maybe where you lost me was in chapter eight. You really doubled down on social media. And I think for smaller brands or, or niche brands, I think social can be the channel or maybe one of their most important but for big brands i feel like they only get bigger from mass awareness and reach over long periods of time which social is hard yeah interestingly te television still works right exactly exactly 
Yeah. So, I mean, how do you think about social and, and maybe the greater mix? Give you a chance to talk about the bigger mix picture. Yeah. Social is incredibly important. So if that chapter led you to think I thought social wasn't important, I, I have I have not done a good job. My point about social was that it needs to be taken seriously as a what I would call a new traditional media channel. What often happens with social is it's relegated to the intern. Still, I see it all the time. It's like, well, we'll get an intern on that, you know, and Facebook's algorithm is stronger than your intern and you have to pay. It is a pay for play platform now. It just is. And, you know, that's just Facebook. I mean, so you've got this incredibly complex mix of platforms and strategies that you have to employ. And I was only all I was saying with social is I am very tired of the conversation around social is cheap and fast. And that's all it is. It is cheap and it is fast comparatively. But you look at the content that's winning, it's either sort of an accident, it's by influencers who are personality driven. And by an accident, I mean, it's a cat falling in a toilet that turns into a you know, worldwide phenomenon. Or it's very deliberately beautiful. Like you'll look at some of the things that, uh, what's the, the company and the, the store in England that just does these just beautiful films and they run them on TV, but then they become these social phenomenons, the uh, Christmas, just Google awesome Christmas commercial with an old man on the moon. You can engineer viral and you can engineer social, but you have to pay for it. And so kind of taking the accidental slash personality driven work off the table, because I think that's really important and you should do it. I'm not saying not to do that stuff. You should absolutely do it. You should think of, of social media as a new traditional channel. That's all I was saying with that. And the, the, the big lie, I think, is that it's cheap and free. You know, it's free and fast. And it's not. It's not free and fast anymore. It used to be. But social media was created. The reason social media was created was to connect human beings. That's why it was created. You had the Facebooks and the LinkedIns and the MySpaces at the beginning that were about connecting people with their friends and fans. And LinkedIn was about business connections. They were not advertising platforms. And so my, you know, I call it the great social media hoodwink because that's why they were born, but that's not what they are anymore. They still have some functionality for that, thank, thank goodness. And that's wonderful. But there's an algorithm that's driving choice, that's driving what you see, that's driving everything. And a lot of it's paid for. And so you need to start thinking of social media a lot differently than, than the mindset that I see. I honestly think in five years, people are going to laugh at that chapter because I, I think it is starting to change finally. I just honestly am tired of the conversation of social as this afterthought that you don't have to pay for. It's not true. So, so that's what that chapter was trying to, to say and obviously, obviously did so clearly to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, I had a feeling it was meant to do, do something I, I just didn't, I didn't understand, which was, was good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> sure. We'll, we'll put this podcast on that page. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the, the brand that, um, that we both blanked on is John Lewis. I did a little looking up. John Lewis. I, I was going to say John West, but that's the salmon. Yeah. John Lewis. Yeah. John, just check out the John Lewis commercials. But again, those are beautifully produced, wonderfully executed, great storytelling that are then dispensed onto the internet, you know, uh, in a, with a paid strategy and they end up being these huge viral things. So they go against everything that's sort of the free, fast and goofy. They don't do any of those things. And yet they're incredibly successful every year. Good. Well, you've talked about a lot of brands so far, but are there brands you think are going to win in the belief economy? I think that any brand that's true to who they are, again, I'm going to just go back. If you make a crap product, you know, 
you're kind of in trouble. But, uh, you know, I, I think if you're being true to who you are and you are smart about getting aligned with the people out there that love that, I think you can win. You have to create some kind of value and solve a problem for people. And that's why, again, like this isn't about, quote, doing good, unquote. It's about solving problems for people. And sometimes that problem might be delighting, you know, I think from a communication standpoint, from the advertising industry, sometimes that's just delighting them with a wonderful message and brightening their day. But it's also with kind of needs to be aligned around what you do. and, And that thing that you do should be good. And I don't mean good as in a moral sort of objective, you know, or subjectively moral good. I just mean that it solves a problem. So it's more important than ever. What I, what I, you know, I have a chapter in the book called David Ogilvy Must Die, and it's not picking on David Ogilvy, who was a genius, but it's, it's that whole era of persuasion, just persuasion, persuasion is that's a tool now. That's not the tool. I think we're in a post disruption era as well. And I think disruption is a tool, not the tool. Interesting. Speaking of tools, you provide, I love books that do this, by the way, but you provide a kind of a set of tools and questions and even a framework to, to work through this and get started on your own. But I'm, I'm curious, maybe beyond that, would you give people any advice that are just starting out to try to figure out how to compete in the belief economy? Absolutely. There's a great quote, and I don't know who said it. I wish it was me, but it wasn't me. But the best time to plant an oak tree is 20 years ago, and the second best time is today. You've got to get started on this journey. You've got to get aligned around what your belief system is and what your values are and beyond sort of a strategic document that has four words on it. And I I think just starting that journey is the most important thing. And that's why I put, I think there is enough to hold a a two-day seminar in that book for internally, an internal department can take the exercises in that book and do it. Of course, we would love to help lead some of those seminars, but, um, that's not why I did it. I really wanted the book to be inclusive. And again, I wrote the book to actually have an impact. And I didn't want to just say at the end, like, give us a call and we'll help you find, you know, I, I wanted people to be able to take this book and, and even you can take the exercises and riff on them as well. So I think just getting started is the most important thing and realizing you have an impact. Every brand has an impact. And what is it? Is it good or is it bad? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it consuming? Is it sustainable? Is it whatever it is? Like you're having one. So now figure out what that is and make sure it's what you want it to be. Well, okay. So step stepping back from this book and just getting back to you again, um, are there brands or companies or causes that you think other people should be taking notice of? Well, I think the biggest cause that we all need to lock hands on, particularly in America as Americans is just civility. We are behaving horribly to each other. And I, I believe we are saying things to each other online that we would never say to each other to our faces. And so we just created this thing called trolltax.org. Uh, yeah, I did see that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So trolltax.org was uh, a consortium of two agencies and some developers. And we were all talking and this friend of mine, Seth, had an idea. And he said, hey, what if we jujitsu trolls by taking whatever they're trolling and allowing people to make a donation in the name of whatever they're trolling. And so we thought, well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty fun. There's an app, I think, that that did something like that. But we wanted to make it actually seamless, you know, where you don't have to open an app. So you can actually, it's a Chrome extension. Uh, you can literally enter the tweet and it sends you right to it through the extension. But the idea is just if you're trolling, and this, again, this is not a political, right now, probably that the causes probably tend to be a little bit more progressive, but it's not, it's not meant to be a uh, ideological tool. It's meant to be against trolling. And so 
So we created this thing, you know, again, we, we worked with a bunch of companies and part of the ampersand of Baldwin and is we're, we're completely comfortable in the sandbox with internal creative departments at clients, with other agencies, with production companies. We don't care who we work with. We're totally cool with it. So we all came together and, and made this thing happen. And we're, again, it's a, just around part of the values of, of my company is to try to have a positive impact on the world. And we thought, what if we can sort of try to help shun some of the kind of incivility happening? But, you know, there's a misunderstanding of civics in our world now, and in particular, the just vitriol that people are speaking to their fellow Americans. And we've turned each other into enemies. People literally think that the other side is an enemy to the country. That's insane. There certainly are. I think if you're carrying a tiki torch, I would consider you an enemy. But I mean, I I think that's a very small percentage. And um, I would ask, what can brands and companies do in that conversation? How do we how do we forward that? There's a brand out there. We don't know which one it is right now, but there's a brand out there that's perfectly suited to actually manage that and sell a shitload of stuff. Because this is the, you know, I'm a capitalist, man. I'm, the point of this book is to help people sell more stuff, but it's to consider your impact while you're doing it. That's again, getting back to connected capitalism and conscious capitalism. It's a, not about not selling stuff and it's not about not making money. It's about doing all of that, but also having a positive effect while you do it and considering your impact. And why wouldn't you do that? So if you have the opportunity to make the world work a little bit better, have a, an, a positive effect around the people that use your products, why wouldn't you do that? That's my question. Why wouldn't you do that? I don't understand why you wouldn't choose that option. So that's, that's again, that's what the book is all about. Last question that you might have to get your crystal ball out, and I don't know how you feel about predictions, but I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think the future of marketing is going to look like. Well, I think uh, there's a lot of obvious things happening where advertising is going in-house and all of these things. What what I think is interesting is people love to decry the end of advertising that, you know, it's 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 collapsing. What's collapsing are the old business models. There's more advertising than there's ever been. You can't get away from it. And in fact, I think that's one reason it's so important that we consider the impact of it. So I I think the question that agencies in in particular, and you asked about marketing, but I'm going to put it into agencies for a second. Agencies need to figure out what their role is in that and how they can play a part in that. And I think in particular, how do we provide more of a business strategy to get to our communications? Because otherwise, you're just living in this ready, fire, aim world where you're, how many times do you see the CMO and the CEO out of step with each other where they're, they're not executing the same vision? And so you have to tie it all together. So I think there's a reason the uh, McKinsey's of the world are getting into our space is they see revenue, but they also see us not doing it. And so I think, you know, A, they're going to be rolling up agencies as much as anything, but B, we need to get into that. And we need to, because I think we're full of people incredibly capable of providing those that kind of thinking and that kind of strategy. So I hope that the future of marketing is more enlightened around the impact that we're all having. And I think it is inevitable because of the generations coming up that you're going to have to contend with that because if you're doing harm, you're in trouble. If you're seen as doing harm, even if you're not doing anything, quote, wrong, you know, unquote, like if you're not doing anything wrong, but you're still creating harm, like you're in trouble. Right. (laughs) Good advice. Good advice. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, David. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. 
Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at Atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with project management by Sarah Williams, audio production by Aaron Campbell, writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. We love to hear from listeners at info at atomic, A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.